Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name is Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we welcome you back. We are back in the weeds, back in the technical information today. We're going to talk soil health again. And, and we did this a few episodes back. Um, if you can remember, and, and we covered we covered a lot of, of soil health things related to cropland, uh, mainly in regards to kind of the, the nuts and bolts of implementing cover crops, which is, I think, essentially the number one th- soil health practice most folks think of uh, when we're talking cropland. And so what we did not have time to get to in that episode, Cameron, was talking a little bit about uh, soil health from a grassland system and also uh, implementing that grazing animal on those uh, cropland acres and, and maybe what that ha- does to soil health in general. Yep. So we've got a couple of guests with us today, uh, one of which is returning. I think maybe, David, you are our first non-MFA returning guest. That is correct. I was thinking about that. And yes. we forgot to have the plaques made, but you go ahead and re- reintroduce yourself uh, to us. Thank you, Adam. I'm David Doctorian. I work for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, NRCS, and uh, I, I work there as an assistant for partnerships and initiatives. Um, but part of the reason I'm here is because before that position, I worked as a soil health specialist in Northeast Missouri. So that's uh, that's my background that brings me to this table today. Yeah, cool. Well, we think we appreciate you coming coming back for sure. He uh, didn't get enough words in last time, That's so right. he's back today. Um, the real expert at the table is our next guest, Drexel Atkinson. Uh, Drexel, you want to give us your kind of your little background on you? All right. Thank you, Adam. Yes, Drexel Atkinson, and I, too, work for the USDA's Natural Resource Conservation Service as a soil health specialist okay. um, in southwest Missouri, and a lot of grazing country there. So. Uh, a lot of grass background and, and grazing uh, experience, both personal and professionally. I was going to say, you do a little grazing yourself, so tell us a little bit about, about that, kind of what you do on your lack of spare time, is what I'd like to say when folks farm sure. on, the, on their own. In the lack of spare time, we run 150 <laughs> cow, um, cow-calf herd, fall calving, and uh, we try to background our calves after weaning on uh, some native forages and try to put pounds on reasonably um, economically on that grass sure cool very good so you said you're a soil health specialist and david used to be a soil health specialist can you tell me a little bit about that position for nrcs and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis sure Uh, the soil health specialist uh, position for nrcs started uh, back in 2017 and our primary focus is to take as much information as we can to producers and other um, field office staff and so we we do um, a fair amount of time training and and doing workshops both for producers and for our staff but um, it's really getting getting out on the land with producers and helping them put soil health practices that support the four principles on the land and in motion I think you uh, you get the prize for the day on segways um, <laughs> into our topic, Drexel. So you mentioned the four principles, and I know we covered it, uh, David, in the podcast about about cover crops. But let's let's kind of start there and talk about the the principles of soil health 
and then we'll kind of get into maybe how those relate to a, to a grassland system or a grazing system versus a row crop system. Sure. It's always good to review the principles, the, the four principles that are uh, universal, regardless of where you're at on the globe. Those principles, um, they, they create soil health. And when we think about maximizing diversity, maximizing the days of living roots, maximizing surface cover, and then minimizing disturbances. Uh, regardless whether it's cropland or, or grazing lands, we review those principles and we think about how we can do those things. We got three we want to maximize and one we want to minimize. And when I think of um, the questions that come to us on pasture land, a lot of it boils down to the minimize, minimize disturbances. Um, so when we think about that on pasture land, one of our um, worst disturbances that we can do is continued overgrazing. So continued overgrazing is a significant soil health disturbance. I got you. Now that, and that's, I think that's the number one thing that folks maybe don't grab out of when you talk about the four principles in related to grazing everybody thinks disturbance is tillage, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the easiest way that you can describe what disturbance is because there's something going on out there. It happens one time and you drive away and, um, you know, eat Thanksgiving dinner all winter, right? Um, and that that was your disturbance. But on a, on a grazing anchor, I think a lot of folks don't understand that, that that grazing animal is disturbance. And so it's hard to say that we want to minimize that because we want that animal to graze, right? But there's there's a happy medium there in, in, in how she does that. And we think about disturbances and, you know, disturbances come naturally and they come, you know, unnaturally. So a heavy, more rain than we need event is a disturbance. A drought is a disturbance. Those things we don't have control over, but what we do have control over is the effect of that disturbance. So we think of disturbances it, like you said, is only a mechanical, but yes, haying, uh, you know, overhaying, overgrazing, uh, herbicide applications, fertility applications are all things that are disturbances. Mm -hmm. And the resiliency that we have built into our soil gives the soil the ability to overcome that disturbance. So the healthier it is, then when we do one of these things, and when we find that we've got a really healthy soil, we do less of all of these things and we don't need to do these things. So exactly, the grazing animal, the primary reason why we have pasture land creates the biggest disturbance. So we want to be able to feed the animal, but we don't want the animal to create a downward spiral of that soil health or soil biology. We graze and then we remove the animal in a rotation and let that plant rest and recuperate. So when we relate those things to the other, you know, the other principles, we have continuous grazing. It does not promote diversity. There's a lot of plants out there that just cannot stand that. So we have a lot of fescue, which does tolerate overgrazing, but that's what we have as a monoculture oftentimes sure. of you know, of just one or two forages. And so that does not promote diversity because there's no rest and there's no varied rest throughout the year. When we keep a living root, it, 
we would all agree that it's a perennial forage and there's a living root out there. But the mass of that root is deteriorated to a, just a very small amount of what could be when we overgraze because the plant can't support a massive root. Um, so we find roots that are one or two inches deep and that's where we find the majority of those and we're not feeding that soil properly. I was just going to have you kind of go into that because it's that's a hard thing to, to visual or to, to get somebody to visualize in this format, I guess. Mm -hmm. But um, can you talk about that a little bit? How, you know, like you said, you'd think maximizing a living root. Yes, there's a living root there, but just not very much root mass when we don't have very much grass. Sure. I, you know, if we just look at the basic principles of plants, um, taking sunlight, the energy from sunlight through the photosynthesis process and, and converting carbon dioxide uh, with water to make glucose. That's a simple process. I mean, that's just really simple and that's really all we need to understand is the most simple process. So the leaves do that and they feed the plant and they feed the roots. And it's fairly um, simple that the less leaves we have, making that glucose and going through that process, the less roots that we can sustain. We just don't have enough energy uh, absorption. We don't have a big enough solar panel on our plant to sustain a very large plant or root population. So they just start dying back to a, a sustainable population. So if we, if we maintain two or three inches of forage out there, then it's only able to a mirror image maintain two or three inches of roots below the surface. In contrary, if we maintain eight, ten, you know, inches of, of forage, not necessarily 365 days a year, but the majority of the year during the grazing time, we have more plant leaf out there. Then we start to see these roots at 12 inches on down you know, for roots on, even on fescue will go down 30, 36 inches. Now the majority of their roots are not that deep because they're not designed to be that deep rooted. But, um, you know, we, we get this living root. We wonder why that is, that is important. And it's because the biology eats those roots and roots are constantly dying and being regrown. And then the other food source there is the exudes from those roots. So that glucose that's being produced, it leaks out of those roots. We call it exudes. And those root exudes and the roots themselves, as they die and decompose, is the biology's food. Yeah. So maximizing a living root is sometimes, just like we think about the uh, disturbance being tillage, when we think about maximizing a living root, we think about just keeping a living root. Sure. It's yeah. not just about just keeping a living root. It's about the amount yep. of those roots. And depth and profile. Depth too. and profile. I mean, because you know, you could have a an extremely healthy top half an inch and that really doesn't do doesn't do anything for you. You really need that that maximized system, basically, at as, as deep as we can possibly make it. And that goes for cropland too. I mean it yep. it's you know, a, a soybean on soybean on soybean system is is, is a hard one to maintain for, for somewhat similar reasons in that you have a very shallow rooting depth. Um, and, and so integrating some of those things that can root deeper um, makes a big difference. So, no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and by maximizing your root health and depth, you're maximizing the nutrients that are in the soil and your water 
you know, your capability to take water. So if we get in a situation where, you know, maybe the summer's drier, well, we have a healthier root system and it's a lot deeper. So we're going to be able to maintain water absorption throughout the year um, just because we've not overgrazed and we're not just relying on one, two inches of root. Yeah, depth. absolutely. So, and, and that whole process that we've discussed is how we build organic matter. <clears throat> And so we, we may not get to, you know, we may not get all the way down to this, but and just throwing out that, yeah. you know, we uh, 1% of organic matter increase in six to eight inches of soil will hold an inch of water. So yeah. just like Adam said, a half inch on top of the, you know, if we build the organic matter in the top half inch, we're really not holding that much more water. But if we can change it over six to eight inches of our soil and add an inch of, or a percent of organic matter, we can hold an extra inch. So... Just think about what we can do if we did that for 30 inches. If we if we promoted good root growth and we increased the organic matter over the depth of 30 inches of soil profile, how much water we could hold. Yeah. And so it's a function of our, our grazing sward, our grazing height, because as we move below five inches of forage, roughly five inches, sure. we begin to lose a percentage of our root mass so uh, that's the that's the probably the part that you know we talk about rest and we talk about days of rest but there's a reason for that um, beyond just the rest that the fact that we don't want to graze below that that critical height because when we do we begin to lose root mass and that has a, a direct impact going forward on how much production we're going to get now then in a, in a 2012 drought event you know, you have to be pragmatic, right? You have to go ahead and maybe go a little further than you would want to. But if you've done a good job managing up until that point, you're probably not going to have the drought impact with a, uh, a pasture that has roots at 30 inches versus a pasture that has roots at three inches. You know, if we have a short dry period, we can drive down the road and see the, the, the impact on those overgrazed pastures because they turn brown almost immediately as soon as it gets hot and dry. Mm-hmm. Whereas those pastures that are managed, same, and, and that's where we, you know, we talk about soil health in uh, cropland and, and the impact there and, and the environmental impact and some of those things. But to me, in grassland and grazing lands, the winter, the top shelf winter is the economics of it. The ability to actually produce pounds of, of grazing animals, whatever that is. I always think of beef, but I know some people think maybe sheep or, or goats or other, but right. you know, the, the ability to do that and do it with the least amount of inputs to me is the, the real winner. And at the same time, you're doing something good in terms of uh, water retention, flood control, runoff, all those other things that are important to people. Right. Absolutely. I just, you know, excellent comment there, David, that um, all things in moderation it doesn't mean that we, that, that we don't have an op- a time where we might graze below what we would think is a minimum grazing height as long as we don't do it every month of the year for you know year in and year out that's where we run into problems and the other thing I'd like to just comment on is your uh, you know your your grass production there your comment is that we're all out there in the business to uh, convert grass into beef there's a few out there that sell forage but for the most of us, we're trying to convert forage to beef and we're selling beef. And we've worked hard and long in our genetics. We've worked hard and long on our herds so that they're as efficient as they can be. 
And I wish that we would work as hard at being as efficient at producing forage as we are at working toward getting an efficient conversion herd. And so I think that that does not, we don't want to leave that unmentioned about how less is more. It's extremely well said. We will put a trailer on the truck and drive to Nebraska if we can find the right bull that we want for our herd. But but we balk at the chance to build a little extra infrastructure, do a few extra things that we need to do to maximize the use of our forage, which of those things is going to make us more money. And that's that's what it boils down to. You know, we go into a paddock and we have nine inches of forage and we and we graze off three and leave six. We we can't hardly you know, we can't hardly get back quick enough before there's another three inches of grass growth on there. Yeah. But when we go into a paddock and we and we take off eight and leave two, it is forever recuperating and getting back to where it's ready to graze again. So, you know, that that's where we really minimize these disturbances. And the one we didn't really elaborate on was maximizing the surface cover. And when we constantly overgraze, we expose the surface of our soils. And, and then, as I mentioned, we have a downward spiral. When we open up that canopy and we expose that surface, we drive the biology deeper. They don't like the heat from the sunlight. Even on a relatively cool day that would make you look for a long sleeve shirt, mm-hmm. the soil temperature can get rather hot from the sun and that biology wants to quit. Well, then we also have another problem that begins and that's where weeds start to have an opportunity to open up and express themselves in these pastures that have that canopy opened up and the soil surface exposed. Well, then one disturbance leads to another. Then we come right back in and say, boy, I've got to use a herbicide to get rid of these weeds. And it all started with overgrazing. Right. Yeah, because I mean, when you think about the weed, when you think about the weed issue, everybody knows exactly where the weed patch started. It's always where they had their least amount of grass, they had their thinnest stand, and the weeds started coming up, and then it starts overtaking and it starts competing more. So, exactly, it's when you start overgrazing, you start, it's just like in our crop ground. I mean, where do we most, generally speaking, when most of our weeds are coming up, they're coming up early in the year when we don't have any cover and they're coming up. You know, still early on that time before the soybeans have been able to close the canopy or the corn's been able to close the canopy, shade it out. It works the same way. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, crop canopy is always your cheapest. That's right. Control. It's the same same principle for forage. Same principle. Yeah. When you talk about uh, kind of reducing that rooting zone or that that root mass um, in and taking off the top of it, what's the difference, or is there a difference? I guess, and can you go into it? in uh, taking off the top of that or pulling some of those leaves with a cow versus running a hay conditioner over it? And um, kind of what's the difference on that plant and how does that look? Sure, so you know when we, when we look at grazing versus uh, haying, there can, be, there can be radical differences or they can be similar. Mm-hmm. And what we don't wanna do with either one is remove all of that canopy too short. So if we look at the grazing animal and if we are constantly, if we were constantly grazing at a two inch height, then two two hay cutters at three inch height over the year would be an improvement. (laughs) They would be an improvement over our short grass grazing. But if we look at this as what I would call 
proper management and we're leaving behind, as David mentioned, a, a, a minimum grazing height, which does fluctuate depending on what species of grasses we're looking at, whether they're cool season or warm season. But if we just threw out a five inch height and maintained a five inch minimum grazing height, but we compare that to a hay cutter and raising our raising that cutting machine up from two inches to that four or five inches makes a world of difference in keeping our surface covered so keeping the temperature down preventing that weed growth we just talked about because hay fields get weedy too because we open up those canopies and we tend to open up the canopy late in the growing season um, you know, especially on, on the cool season grasses, yeah. we open up that canopy, we cut too low, and we just promote those summer annual weeds to come in. So if we raise that up and cut as early as we can, which we've always talked about cutting forage early from a forage nutrition, but when we look at it from a soil health position, we want to cut early so we can get some regrowth before the temperatures get really hot. So we can have both good and bad out of both of them. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that explanation. Let's talk a little bit about the the diversity side of things because we've mentioned weeds and, and, and weed control, and then we, you know, we've mentioned cool season grass pastures. Can you go into like, and, and you know, by diversity, we are not exactly talking about weeds, but, but kind of walk me through your thought process on kind of the difference and, and then how you go about promoting diversity in, in any system that you're grazing. Sure, and I think that first we might just mention that, you know, weeds, we've always called a weed as a plant out of place, right? So we got a soybean plant in a cornfield as a weed. Pastures, not necessarily any different. However, if the soybean plant if the soybean plant in the cornfield caused an increase in corn yield, we wouldn't mind it so bad. That's right. Now, we didn't run the bean through the combine, but we got more corn. So when we look at pastures, sometimes our weeds, not necessarily are something that we're gonna harvest or that the grazing animal is gonna harvest, but because of its function because of its relationship with the biology it helps the plants that are being grazed produce more and then there's these wonderful things that plants are not uh, they protect themselves and they're not very palatable during some times of the year and they're very palatable in other times and they have protection methods so um, you know the diversity doesn't always have to be a plant that we deem extremely palatable. They all have their purpose and oftentimes that purpose is just plant health of the companion plants that are around it. So, you know, when we, we want to graze to promote diversity, when, you, when we look at a continuously grazed pasture, then what we do is we select for the plants that will tolerate that. So if we graze 12 months a year at two inches high, we will select for best unilodino clover. Those are the two that come to my mind right off the bat because they're going to tolerate that. Right. Now, if we want to increase diversity, then we change our habit. We raise 
that height of that grazing. And then we start to, we have those rest periods. So good, um, you know, a good grazing system is where we start. And it's, it's been a start for the last, you know, 30 some years is a good grazing system where we provide for a, a grazing period and then a rest period. And then we can build on that. But that diversity starts to come because we're not constantly selecting for plants that will tolerate overgrazing. And then we start to build on varying our grazing duration and restoration and the time of year we provide it. So we get in these ruts and you know the easiest one is where we feed hay and where we might calve. So we all have a calving pasture, we all have a hay field, and we start out in our grazing system in the, in the paddock that we graze April the 15th every year is the same paddock where we start, and we need to stop that. That's, that will promote diversity in itself when we have a, a varied uh, rest period during a varied season. So the, the, the pasture we start out on should be a different pasture every year. Uh, where we calve different, where we hay uh, different pasture as much as possible, then we start to have what I like to call an intentional randomness. So, you know, sometimes people are just random because they're random, but we got to have to build in intentional yeah. randomness. Well, and, it's, it's actually, I think that's fairly rare to be completely honest because he, human. We like order, right? Um, we're sitting in a conference room here that uh, uh, one conference room is A and one conference room B, okay? Cameron told me this morning that he doesn't like that the A conference room is on the right and the B conference room is on the left. He thinks it should be the other way around because it's just it's a good example of how humans, we like things to be neat, tidy, and orderly. System. We like a system, right? Yeah. And so I think what you're talking about with the uh, with the kind of that organized randomness is is hard for some people. But and you, but you can normalize it so it doesn't seem so random. Yeah. Uh, um, you know we're talking about diversity, and the first thing we think about is if we're in fescue ladino, diversity would be to add orchard to that or to add natives to that. But to to Drexel's point, diversity can be and should be really more probably geared towards diversity of management so that it becomes systematic that in 2022 we turn the cows out in pasture uh, a in 2023 we begin our grazing rotation in pasture c uh and and, and we we rotate where we hay we we, we systemize that but it it's not so it it might look random but it actually there's a method to it right. so diversity of management is probably uh, as key to to this part of it especially in the grazing systems uh, than anything we can probably do in terms of diversity certainly we can add those native warm and cool season grasses and make a huge difference uh, but but being able to think about it in terms of you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to hay, um, change where I hay. Number one, maybe change the timing of when I cut hay. Number yep. two, the the uh, how uh, close we cut that hay. You know, all those things 
start to come to play, and those are all management decisions. I think that that is one of the strongest points made here so far is that, that management is where it starts, and the, and the diversity of management will take care of the rest of it. You know, I, I remember as a, young, as a young man digging a hole with postal diggers, my dad always telling me, quit worrying about the center of the hole, dig around the edge, keep the hole, or you're gonna end up with just a little tapered hole, and the center will take care of itself. Dig the edge, the center will take care of itself. Management is digging around the outside of the hole. The center will take care of itself. The diversity will come. We can buy all the seed we want to seed and plant it. But if I don't change my management, I'm still going to have fescue and ladino. Not going to have anything else. Not that there's anything wrong with fescue and ladino. It's just that you're going to be limited in what you can do in your your production system. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, we, we really haven't even talked about that forage production. We did touch on it just lightly there when we talked about the the uh, can you know the herd management but when we talk about forage management we're in a situation where you know forage acres are expensive and the inputs are expensive on forage acres and we need to maximize that forage production so you know we really haven't hardly talked about that but the the simple math is is that when we when we overgraze continuously we stifle the production of any given acre and and it may be a third it may be at a third of its potential because of the way we're managing and um, oh, yeah. you know yeah. we could be at half we could be at a third yeah and uh you know i i spend a lot of time in southwest missouri and i see a lot of our overgrazed pastures that i would say are at a third of their potential yeah. so when you think about that and you think of the how much that i'm going to remove you know, it's it's fairly kind of simple math. I'm removing 90% of something that's very low in production, maybe a couple thousand pounds of actual dry matter that I get to utilize in my cow. And if I start to change my management that you, you know, that you said so elegantly is the most important thing, then pretty soon I'm at 4,000 pounds of production. Maybe I can get to 6,000 pounds of production on some of our better soils, you know, and we think, um, you know, so when you do the math, 90% of 2,000 is 1,800 pounds of dry matter for my cow. If I take half, leave half, and I can grow 4,000 pounds, and then I'm getting to use 2,000 pounds. Doesn't seem like a big, a big amount, but it's still 200 more pounds of dry matter I use for my grazing animal. Yep. And if I go to using 60%, or I'm sorry, 40%, of 6,000 pounds, I'm at 2,400 pounds of dry matter that I've got to use for my grazing animal. So that is pretty significant, yeah. over 1,800 that I was using before. And so I think that's the kind of things that we have to look at. When we start to maximize these three principles and, and minimize disturbance, then that's where we get more forage production and I'm leaving more behind, but I'm promoting good nutrient cycling good water cycling and we see such poor water cycling in our overgrazed pastures you know and that's it's that that's the beautiful picture the rainfall simulator shows yep. is that those overgrazed pastures will only take in about two tenths of an inch of any given rain but a well-managed pasture takes in eight tenths of of rain 
you know, and so I get to utilize that much more water when I manage my pastures. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And it, it's, it, it all comes back to, to economics, honestly. I mean, if you could buy your neighbor's farm at $100 an acre, you wouldn't be near as worried about it, right? But, you know, we could just move acres over there and move the cows over there. It wouldn't be a big deal. But when you look at trying to expand a herd, expand an operation, what's the most cost-effective way to do so? Well, it's sure as heck starts with staying inside your own boundary, um, you know. So, so something to think of there. And, and you you brought up a, a good point about the kind of the rainfall simulator, and and I wanted to get into some of this anyway. Talk to me about kind of what you guys see, and, and you could describe. I know this is again hard. It's a hard principle to describe, um, you know, without some sort of visual. But kind of describe. Um, what happens there, how you measure some of that infiltration, what are some of the, the kind of visual clues? And, and David, I'm going to ask you to, to, to redo your statement that you made before we started recording here on how easy it is to visualize some of the uh, practices and how those relate to soil health on cropland. And, and that is maybe harder for folks to visualize in a grazing system. Yeah, you know, I think in cropland we can see those we can see the, the erosion take place. We can see uh, those eroded hillsides that you know it won't grow anything. Visually, it's easy to see pasture because of that uh, grass and the cover that's there, even if it's short grazed, it's just a little more difficult to visualize. You know, when we, when we look at pastures and we think about production and our ability to grow forage, we're not limited on sunlight. We're not limited on uh, genetics. We're not. Li- our limitation is not nutrients or weed control. Our limitation is um, moisture. And so, when we do the, the rainfall simulator, the, the most in, the most in, informative part of that is getting to dig the tray. That's the most. In- formative part. If you go out to dig a tray uh, for that simulator out of a well-managed pasture, it doesn't take any effort. The, the shovel goes right in the ground. It's easy to dig. You can, you can get that uh, slab of soil dug out of, the, out of the pasture without any real effort. When you go to dig that slab of soil out of a overgrazed pasture, you had better pack your lunch because you're going to be there a while. It's like concrete. Yep. And, and you don't have to dig very far to, to get past where the roots are. When you dig the tray for the uh, well-managed pasture, you usually dig, I'll say, 10 inches to get around that soil slab and get underneath it, get it peeled out of the ground, and there'll be roots all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, in that overgrazed pasture, you will not have roots past an inch and a half. It, you just it, Rarely would you see roots deeper than that. And that's why there's your ability to produce there is so limited because there's just nothing to drive that plant. Uh, and back to Drexel's point, you know, the sun, sunlight um, that we're converting into uh, energy for that plant, it's not happening on either side of that. So that's really the issue is the, the compaction, the inability to get water into the system, the inability for, for the plant to get ahead. And when you're looking at it, and you're pulling cows off of a pasture when there's maybe six inches or eight inches of forage left, 
as a producer, it's hard for us to do that. Mm-hmm. It's hard for us to, because we don't have the, the calculation right then of how much we're going to gain over a year's time. Yep. We're just looking about what we left. Yep. But uh, the, the, the numbers add up and, and the data is clear that when we graze that down to the tabletop, our production ability is diminished over time, and, and that, that that's accelerated. You know, it gets worse and worse because then we get all those things we've already talked about. We get weeds, we get compaction, we get, um, you know, instead of having fescue in Ladina, we end up with uh, bluegrass, right? I mean, it just it just continues to spiral down. So those things aren't, aren't really helpful. And it all comes back to that um, inability to get water into the profile and to manage that water to grow to grow forage, I think. That's what I, in, in Drexel, and I'm in the northeast part of the state, Drexel in the southwest, you'd probably have a different viewpoint, but. No, uh, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right, David, and the, and the thing that you've uh, danced all around is the one word that seems to sum it all up, and that's aggregation. And that's a word we use in our soils that when David talks about digging that tray when our soils are aggregated, they look like cottage cheese, and and there's little uh, little aggregates, little little curds of soil rather than just individual particles. And so that is the process that we have to have in place in order to get that water in the soil. So once we once once we realize that, uh, then we start to look at how do I create aggregation, which is what we've all talked about all morning here. That's what we're doing. We're creating aggregation. The four principles that we've talked about, the grazing management, uh, the the you know the minimizing the disturbances, those are that's building aggregation. That's the process in which we get water in. So we have to look at the importance of that water and and how quickly the downward spiral is taking place. So you're standing on the you're standing on the high dive board. And I pull the plug on the pool. David, you're okay if you immediately jump. You'll be fine. But if you stand up there and hesitate for very long, you're not going to be very good shape when you jump. (laughs) And that's just about how quick a downward spiral can happen. We can lose these aggregates in our pastures rather quickly whenever we start to, to mismanage and then... We lose the water. And where I'm going with this is, is our biological function is aquatic. So it, it's aquatic. So we, when we lose the water going in, we think the first thing that happens is, is our plants dry out. But that's not the first thing that happens. What The first thing that happens is, is the biology quits functioning because it can't swim. And so when we think about 90% of our soil biology being aquatic, and that process, that biological process, that, that living part of the soil being essential for plant growth, when it stops, the plants stop growing. So we need to quit worrying about our plant as much as we worry about the biology in the soil. What can I do to keep the swimming pool full? I need for that biology to be able to swim around and do uh, its thing. Because when it's doing its thing, then my plant is doing its thing. Then it makes my management much easier. So that aggregation process, 
comes from that biological process uh, or the the ecological of you know the protozoans eating eating the bacteria uh, the, the amoebas and the and all these things that are going on in our soil their processes stick our individual soil particles together and build these aggregates creates pore space and we have so many soils that are collapsed and we don't have a 50% pore space in our soils. 50%, 25% being air, 25% being water and that varying throughout the course of the year with rain events and our soils breathing and and the pore space is the lungs of the soil and we've got to get that built back in there and the biological process does that. So if, if water is our most limiting factor, and it is, as David mentioned, we've got to understand the process of getting water into the soil. Yep. And that's and that's through this aggregation process, which is is really what we have talked about. Yeah. So you you um, man, you are really are the king of segues because like it's like you know what I'm going to talk to you about next. Um, I love that ana- analogy with the the biology needs to swim. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what that grazing animal does? Or doesn't do, or kind of the interactions with the bio. This could this could be a rabbit hole, but um, how does that grazing animal affect that soil biology? So, first and foremost, the the grazing animal is the above ground biology's cycling. Okay, so we're we're taking a forage, we're we're running it through the rumen. Um, we're defecating it. We have um, manure and and um, urine. We have we have milk foam. If we have you know cows out there that have calves, we have a lot of things that are going on to actually s- cycle biological functions on the surface. Then we also have the hoof action, and so hoof action is the process where we would. You know, an animal steps on a plant and sets that plant to the surface. So our soil biology doesn't have a way to retrieve. Now, we think of an earthworm. An earthworm can retrieve um, residue. It can retrieve its food from the surface. Uh, bacteria, the protozoans, the, the amoebas, the nematodes. You know, I say nematodes. Everybody thinks about bad ones, but there's, there's more good ones than there are bad ones. But sure. When we think about all these, they don't have a way to retrieve that. So when we put something down on the soil surface with a grazing animal, now it becomes becomes food source for them. So it's essential for, for good cycling above and below. We cycle, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that continuous soybean production, very difficult to, to maintain from, from many different uh, aspects. We, we need to keep a biological cycle. We need to keep diversity in place. And that cow brings diversity. Whether we bring the cow to the cropland, we bring in some diversity. And so uh, what, is, you know, what does she bring? Well, she brings manure that may or may not be on, you know, you may have some manure on your cropland, but there's a lot of cropland acres that have never seen any manure for years and years and years. They've never seen any urine. They've never seen any milk foam. They've never seen a hoof action to take down that plant material to the biology for it 
then it can eat it. So there's a, there's a lot of dynamics there that the grazing animal brings too that we have in place on grazing acres. Mm-hmm. They're there. And, and, you know, I mentioned earlier that the foundation is a good grazing system. Then how we manage it and what we do with it is dynamic. So it, it changes. Everything that we do has a domino effect of change. So if I get in a rotation where I'm moving my cows, uh, you know, we would tell any producer that has a continuous graze system, if you could just get in a one week, if you could just move your cows every Saturday, there's a change. Yep. Well, that change will stabilize. Okay, so we'll see an increase and an improvement. But then if we change his rotation and we get him to a five-day rotation, there's a change. But then it plateaus. And this goes back to the varied management. If we go to a three-day rotation, I get a change, but it'll plateau. All these changes take us to a higher plateau. And if we want to get on the highest plateau that we can, then that's when we start to look at daily moves, uh, 12-hour moves, you know, using a paddock within a paddock system where we would go out and use polywire and, and concentrator cows for 12 hours, but then they don't they don't come back for 90 days or 120 days. You know, so the dynamics of doing that, you don't have to do that on a whole farm, but as you rotate around and you do these things, that dynamic is huge when we have that type of diversity in our management. Um, and that's not where we start. No. That, that's, you know, that, yeah. that needs to be pointed out. There's, there's different levels to this. So that might be where someone that's been doing it for many years uh, transitions into finally, but, but we, we don't start there. We start with, like you were talking about earlier, a good solid uh, grazing system. Yeah, and I, you mentioned the, plat, you know, increasing in what you, you're seeing out there and getting, I think that there are an exorbitant number of grazing acres across the state that just seeing that first increase to that very first plateau in moving those cows once a week or once every two weeks, like what you like started talking about, that's a marketable visual, you can feel it kind of change, I think, for a lot of people off of a continuous graze system. So just getting up to that first hill to that first plateau, um, I think is going to push you on to the next one, but but that's not a major management change to get to that first plateau, I don't think. I'd like to say one thing is, is oftentimes uh, when we do this, the, the, the producer, that, that customer that we're working with, the immediate question is, well, I can have more cows then. Well, no, not always, and probably more often not than, than yes. Initially, uh, I would say that the answer is always just about no, you can't have more cows yet. We've got to get you up from the foundation. Yep. So, but what will it do for me? And that's something that we have to talk about is these inputs. We, we yeah. could, maybe we can just maintain the number of cows that we've got with less hay, mm-hmm. less fertility, less herbicide applications, um, better calving rates, you know, conception rates go up, uh, less disease treatment, less use of the dart gun, and you know all of these things start to add up. You know, I mean, it's so, not. So what if what what if I could have the same number of cows, not more cows, same number of cows, but make more um, return on each cow? 
Well, that would be a win, right? That's a that's a that's a super win, and yeah. I can't I can't go without saying this. Once I've learned something, I just uh, you know I have to say it. But I was listening to a climatologist, and they talked about the mitigation, and uh, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about climate change, but I do want to just mention that uh, it's different. You know, our our rains. Our, how much rain we're getting in the spring seems to be different. It's done it now several times. And so we have to, we do have to realize that um, something is changing. It's, it, but here's the point that stuck with me is that a poorly managed, overgrazed pasture system, the producer will mitigate eight years out of 10, mitigate something, either too wet of a soil, too dry of a soil, a lack of forage. Uh, you know, we're gonna mitigate weeds, we're gonna, mitig- we're gonna mitigate. And when we think about mitigation, mitigation is synonymous for spending money. I'm just gonna say money. Yeah, money. And so what David's point is exactly right, because contrary to that, a well-managed, According to the, you know, to the climatologist, the, and he, he was an agriculture climatologist, if I manage well, I only have to mitigate three years out of 10. So that's a 50% from eight to three. That's 50%, five years better that I don't have to write a check to mitigate a problem that the climate has sent my way. Mm-hmm. And that's because... I am managing for sustainability, but I'm managing for resilience. So my soil has resilience built into it. And now I get to maintain that cow herd and I don't have to go buy hay when it's high because everybody's buying hay because everybody's experiencing the same problem at the same time. You know, I don't have to do some of these things that cost me money. So the bottom line is, is I'm extremely more profitable with the same number of animals that I've had. Very good point, David. He's proud. He's proud. (laughs) Every once in a while, I get one. Um, Before we kind of pivot and talk about uh, trying to help folks, trying to implement stuff like this, what um, what parts of of the process have have we missed out on? Is, Is there something that we should have covered? from a soil health perspective on, on grazing acres that, that we didn't get around to? Probably percent of the acres that, that you would consider converting to native warm season for, for that summer slump. I think that's probably something that we need to think about a little bit. Um, it might be a little more advanced than just starting with that original grazing plan, but I think it's something that folks um, should consider early uh, moving you know, we, we certainly don't want to be without fescue, um, but uh, I think to the same point, we don't want to be without, I, th- I think a good grazing farm doesn't want to be without some native uh, warm season grass either. Yeah, I think it's, that's a good, that's a good something to talk about there. We've been, we've been building grazing systems since the mid nineties when, when we really got hot, NRCS really got hot on grazing systems and 
Uh, we're going to talk about here in a little bit about some of the cost share opportunities, but then when those started. So there's a lot of grazing systems out there because we've been building them for years. And there's a lot of them that have plateaued. And we've got some good tools in the toolbox to take them to a higher uh, functionality. And one of those is actually, as David mentioned, some summer grasses, some, some native grasses that actually want to grow and do their best production in the hottest, driest part of the, the year. And so we try to utilize cool season grasses for the most part, uh, you know, fescue. Uh, we can't deny that fescue is probably our, it, well, there's no probably, it is the, that is the forage base. And so we try to utilize it when it doesn't want to grow and whenever it's uh, not at its best. So when we look at some of the native grasses that uh, are warm season grasses, the big blue stem, the Indian, the switchgrass, the little blue stem, the eastern gamma grass, side oats gramma, we look at those, they want to grow when it is hot. They have roots that are designed to go deep. Uh, the soils will allow, they'll go 14, 15 feet in the ground. So they know where moisture is. They know how to find moisture. They were designed that way. They, they, they are uh, efficient with moisture. They can produce a lot of pounds of forage with a minimal amount of moisture. So, you know, when we think about sustainability and resilience, incorporating that into the farm, into those grazing acres, and as David mentioned, the percentage, when we start to look at, you know, 25 to 35% would be a really good place to start. As we become comfortable with them and uh, maybe even incorporate some cool season natives right. in with those warm seasons, we could push that percentage uh, higher and, and work our way up to something that might be the opposite. We might go all the way to 65 or 70 percent of those um, grazing acres. Still, as David mentioned, it's good to have some of that, that uh, very tough uh, fescue for winter strip grazing. Nothing beats fescue for stockpiled winter strip grazing. Um, that's some of the best hay off the stump that we can grow. Uh, there's probably not very many plants that I can think of that would rival fescue for that right. purpose. So it's good to have some around. But yep. So the sky's the limit, but getting started, 25, 30% of those grazable acres, thinking about it as a start point. In comparison to, to our introduced cool seasons, it's a little expensive to establish. And so that's, and that's where the cost share uh, component comes in maybe. The assistance to establish those natives. Yeah, and as we as we talk about that, we might uh, even throw a segue in for another podcast and talk about um, you know those warm season grasses and the benefits and why it's still efficient uh, or uh, beneficial to establish those. You know, we, um, we early on we mentioned in the introduction I do a little grazing at home, and we we background those calves, we wean them and keep them around on some warm season grass. So maybe we'll get the opportunity to talk about that again in the future and it'll be another podcast. So with that, how do we get started, right? Where, where can we get some help? Yep. That's, you guys work for NRCS, so I figured we'd go there at some point. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities through, a, through your local USDA service center. You have um, 
certainly NRCS is there, Natural Resources Conservation Service. You have uh, MDC has some, provides some assistance, Missouri Department of Conservation, they can provide some assistance. The Soil and Water Districts, uh, tremendous partners in all of this, they provide uh, assistance through some programs. So not just one thing, and we don't represent, we're not here to represent those other organizations, but but we would be doing a disservice if we didn't mention them because they're they are huge partners in uh, in supporting agriculture here in, in the state. So we want to make sure we mention that. But for us, we talk a lot about EQIP, Environmental Quality Incentive Program. We talk a lot about CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program. Those are two of the two of our mainstay. Uh, uh, programs. We also now have something called the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, RCPP. That will be another avenue that's growing, another avenue of support for these kind of things. So a lot of uh, different opportunities available through that local USDA office to assist. But you know what? If you're not interested in the financial assistance, you can go there for technical assistance. You can go there and talk to people like Drexel maybe maybe even get to talk to Drexel or one of his counterparts and just receive the technical assistance if it's something that you want to do on your own but you just need a little bit of, of extra information and uh, and I know that our partners with MFA are super supportive of all these things when you think about uh, just the the inputs that, that are necessary whether it be post and polywire and fencers those kind of things or seed and fertilizer to get established you know, that's, that's a huge uh, support for all this. Yeah, and we don't want to, um, you know, we've, we've had a long-standing relationship with our University of Missouri Extension agronomists, too, and, and those grazing specialists are out there. And um, so there's a lot of people to talk to about technical assistance. Um, but if we look at what's available to maybe help as David mentioned, some of these things are expensive and, and the infrastructure is expensive. You know, what can we do and where can we find, find it financial help? And we have a lot of avenues for that. Um, so the, the longstanding program through um, the USDA or NRCS has been the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, EQIP. Uh, that's what everybody calls it, EQIP, E-Q-I-P. And that is the federally funded financial assistance program to put conservation on the ground. And so we, that whole process comes with a, an application. You usually come in to one of the USDA offices, make application for that program, and you can do that any day of the, of the year. You can do it online. You can go into uh, farmers.gov and you can actually make an application online uh, so that's where it starts and then you'll sit down with a planner and you'll sit down with a conservationist there and, and kind of determine what what resource concerns you have what resource concerns are uh, out on the farm and what conservation practices best address those resource concerns uh, so uh, a you know, a suite of practices is generally then put together to, to fix the, the issues that are out there. And that process goes through and uh, it's a ranking process with EQIP. So the, the more uh, environmental benefits that are 
more environmental benefits that you address with your application, the higher it ranks and the better opportunity you have to get selected. That's um, a good point. It is know. a competitive process. Yes, so it is a competitive process. You, you may or may not be funded that first time. Sure. You know, and, and you'll have an opportunity then to address that. Uh, you, you'll, get, uh, you'll get notified that your application wasn't funded and would you like to continue or would you like to improve that, uh, that offer. And so that's kind of the, the, the basis of the Environmental Quality Incentive Program. And the state, uh, so then we have to look at the local soil and water districts. As David mentioned, we have a, a phenomenal relationship with our local soil and water districts. And they have funding also available through them, through the one-tenth of a percent state uh, parks and soils tax. And it is, um, it mimics EQIP in many ways, many of the same practices, uh, many of the same uh, functionality there, but it is not competitive. It is on a first-come, first-served basis. And so you go in, you, you talk to one of the conservationists, you tell them what uh, you want to do, and you get on a list. And when your number comes up, then you uh, work through that process. And, and so, you know, the processes that we're talking about are the practices that are most common on these grazing systems is going to be internal cross-fencing, water distribution pipelines, you know, water pipelines and water tanks and then forage improvement and, and a well, if, if that's needed in, you know, Southwest Missouri, we, we look at wells and it's not, it's not that common necessarily all over the state, but you know, we got to get water out there. So if we, we can build these grazing systems and manage our grazing. Uh, and like I said, then forage improvement. And as David mentioned earlier, the, the conversion of some of these acres from existing cool season fescue to uh, native grasses is a very um, uh, it's a high priority in the state for us to to get more native grasses established uh, for many reasons so there uh, there's a couple different programs right there and then uh, we surely want to mention the conservation stewardship program which has opportunities within it as well uh, it i would say that its focus more is on uh, management rather than practice establishment and if it would go a long ways toward uh, some incentives to maintain your current level of management and encourage you to implement a higher level of management I think that's that would be the the conservation stewardship or CSP program in a nutshell is um, you know a uh, compensation for what you have done and and an encouragement to go to another level yeah so there's a couple of things that that i want to re-emphasize off of what you just mentioned there the first of which being that it can get very confusing um as to looking at programs we are lucky that is so confusing in the state of missouri to find a conservation program and find one that you know um everybody knows about because we have so many and it is very easy to get lost in the weeds of which one. And so off of what you guys said, I think it's very important to have someone um, that you know is a, is a good book of technical expertise, whether that's Drexel or myself or um, whoever that is, to know, because I'd say within five minutes of a, 10 minutes of a conversation, Drexel, you probably know 
that it's like if this person needs some assistance, I know exactly the best way and the best program for you to go, the best road for you to go down, essentially. You know, I think that's a, that's a good point that you make, Adam, because if you were to come in and talk to one of our conservationists and you were um, very specific in wanting to build a grazing system and that's all you had on your mind was just uh, build this grazing system and get it started, you would very most likely fit into the soil and water program, the state cost share program very well, and they could take care of you. Uh, David, if comes in and he tells me he wants to build this grazing system, he's very interested in uh, improving some of his woodlands and incorporating wildlife into his grazing system, doing some other activities, then some of those activities are not available. And so that I would very, with your right, within just a few minutes, I could tell David probably needs to, uh, he needs to investigate the environmental quality incentive program, whereas your resource concerns and your situation would take you down a different avenue. So that's exactly right. They're, uh, you know, they're not exactly the same. So there are, there are differences that uh, would make one um, a better opportunity for the producer than the other. So. Yeah. We're very, again, we're very extremely lucky to have the number of, of programs that we do. And I, and I cannot emphasize enough, you mentioned, you, you've mentioned some of the soil and water district cost share, um, those, that one-tenth of one percent tax. Those are funds that, that are expended at the local level. Those are local tax dollars. It's, that's kind of a beautiful system that we have that the folks in Missouri vote every 10 years, essentially, uh, very decidedly to spend their money in good ways and in good practices, practices that benefit all of us in agriculture all the time. And, and so I, I think it's underutilized in some areas of the state and probably could be better utilized, um, but it's just, it's a really good system and a, and a really good program, or can be for sure. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's, it's money well spent. Yes. Yes, it's a... Yep. So, I mean, we love spending federal money in Missouri. We'll continue to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is something that is, is very nice to know that all, the, all your neighbors in your community support spending this money on conservation and on, on conservation practices on the farm. And, and like that money is, is from Missouri and it, it goes back and resides back in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, it's an interesting fact. The last time that was renewed, it was renewed by almost 83% of the vote. Yep. 83%. Now, when have 83% of us agreed on anything? Not in my lifetime. And not just agreed on something, <laughs> agreed on taxing ourselves. We're not yep. taxing someplace, That's someone, right. you know, ourselves. We're taxing 83% of us. So that tells you the support, and, uh, and, and it's supported because it's, you know, it's well run, it's well administered. Yep. And uh, people appreciate it, and, and it's 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 used well. Not to not to discount what we do through Equip and CSP, but, right? Uh, it, it's, it's it's an option. It I guess maybe the the probably the most important thing, put a bow on this is, just go down and talk to whoever it is that you can uh, get a hold of at the USDA Service Center. Call down there, make an appointment, and uh, and become familiar with those things. And and from that conversation, you'll have a sense of what direction you need to go. And, and like you said, Adam, it might be that they will decide just to call you and, uh, and work through you on, on what that is. But uh, just start that conversation. Yep. Yep. I agree. And I think we definitely don't want to leave out the fact that we are, uh, we're boots on the ground. So we will, you know, we, we'll come to you. 
uh, when you when you do what David said and you call down there and you talk to someone, someone's going to come out, and we are that's a that is definitely a service that we're providing is to come out and look at your resources, look at your operation, and help you on an individual basis. Did we cover that well enough? You think? What did we miss from today? I guess before we kind of wrap this up. Oh, there's so much. I, we well, can talk oh, I know. About. I was going to say, I, I yeah, think, we could be here all afternoon. Yeah, I, I hopefully, it, it, the, the point of, I think today would just be, really just to be to cause folks to stop and ask themselves some questions about are there areas in their grazing system that they can improve? Yeah. And are, are, do they feel like that's something they're interested in? And hopefully, this conversation will will maybe cause them to ask those questions and get a hold of someone like Drexel or, or Adam and, and uh, just drill down on that and see where they end up. I think there's opportunity, I'll say that. Yep. Yep. I think that's it. Uh, you know, in a nutshell, just as David mentioned earlier, and, and we had him reiterate, is that it's the, the cropland's obvious. We see some, you know, we can see those things, but when we, we I, I hate to, you know, uh, dwell on them too hard but those those four soil health principles when we think about those we think oh I've got that covered I've got grass I've got perennial forage out there I've got it covered and uh, we don't have it covered we, we don't have those principles covered on many of our grazing acres so uh, you know as we talked here for quite some time we have a lot of opportunity for improvement and uh, that's that's where we need to go yeah. yeah, and I would say as the black sheep in this room of not being the soil health experts like the other three of you is, you know, like David said, it's not a matter of we got to do everything right away to start this process. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we think about it in the row crops, if you want to be if you want to be national corn growers, high yielding contests, you're not going to convert all of your farm ground into trying to push every single input, every single management practice as high as you can to get to that point to raise 600 bushel corn or you know 140 bushel beans it's all amount of taking baby steps and you know implementing a grazing system at first um, then you know in, introducing native grasses or um, different practices like that it's it's we got to have a slow process and like we said you know we've got a lot of guys that are row crops and cattle producers the same or just cattle producers um, and sometimes you can get overwhelmed but it's just a matter of like Drexel mentioned you know get in a habit of on a Saturday, go rotate the cows on Saturday, and then you start building upon that, and you're gonna we're gonna be able to see our gains, and so then event, maybe eventually, you know, after we get together, um, we can all have bankers mad at us because guys are coming in saying they want to loan for more cows eventually, but you know it's you got to build up to that point. So, yep. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent point. You know, it, it we didn't get we didn't get where we're at in a day or a growing season. And it's going to take us a few growing seasons to get back, and there's just a, that's right. Uh, you know, there's there's room for uh, there's room for improvement for most of us, and I think we've got yeah, a we've got true. something uh, we've got something to help you make an improvement uh, wherever you're at. You know, wherever you're at in your in your system, crop system or grass system, your your pasture system, we've got something that can help you uh, get to the next step on the stairway. Yep. Absolutely. Well said. Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for coming in today. Um, it's hard to find so much expertise around one side of the table over there. So I appreciate it very much. I know your time's 
worth a lot, and we, we appreciate you coming in. Yeah, I appreciate it. Like I said, I felt like the black sheep's here, so well, that's okay. Thank thank you for the exactly. opportunity. We, we appreciate being being able to be here. Yes. Great. Yep. Don't say that too loud. We'll have you back next time. Well, I'd like to come back and maybe talk about uh, a few of these things that we uh, that we left untouched. We can definitely yep. we can definitely get that in the works. Thanks a lot, gentlemen, and thanks everybody for listening. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.